I grew up in northern New Jersey in the city of Plainfield. In the 1950s, a diverse but highly segregated community. As a young child, I didn't even know that the West End, where the city's African-American population was concentrated, even existed. None of my parents' friends lived there. Our social relations lay in the opposite direction, up the hill, toward the Plainfield Country Club, where we ate out every few weeks, and in the summer played tennis and swam. Some of my fondest memories of childhood reside there, playing Marco Polo in the pool, reading books on bath towels laid out on the grass, eating blue popsicles from the snack bar. It took me years to notice there were no people of color there. I, I knew there were people of color in Plainfield, a handful attended my school, but their absence from the Plainfield Country Club, which I later learned was a strict policy, never disturbed my childhood innocence. I might have imagined that people of color enjoyed another equally pleasant country club of their own somewhere else. But the truth was, I never thought about it. I was colorblind. I was not color-wise. If you attended my installation here in 2008, you heard my friend Kyle Johnson read from the Tao Te Ching. Kyle is of African, Irish, and Cherokee ancestry. His wife, Lex, is half Chinese, half European American. A few years ago, Kyle, Lex, Julie, and I were playing the game called Scruples, in which players predict how another will respond to an ethical dilemma. Kyle drew a card that asked, if he saw a parked car unlocked with its headlights left on, would he turn them off? Now, Kyle is one of the kindest and most principled people you'll ever meet. All of us, including his wife, were sure he'd turn the lights off. Kyle said, no way. As a young black man, he explained, entering a vehicle not his own, even for a moment, risked deadly consequences. What if the owner arrived just as he was opening the door, or a police officer? If I were to open a car door to turn off the headlights and found myself suddenly challenged, my pale skin and my confident sense of entitlement would protect me. As I calmly explained, I was just doing a good deed. Kyle's darker skin would brand him a suspect. Fear would flicker in his eyes, and his fear would be justified. Julie, Lex, and I were colorblind. Kyle was color-wise. Last June's General Assembly in Charlotte, North Carolina, featured a workshop titled Views from the Pews, Race and Unitarian Universalism. It's difficult to be a UU and a person of color, admitted panelist Greg Boyd, a young African-American pursuing his PhD in education at Penn State University. 
He used to attend a Unitarian Universalist church in the Boston area. He didn't say which one. Every Sunday at his church, every Sunday, someone would ask Greg if he was visiting for the first time. Every Sunday at his church, someone would confuse him with the custodian. I love this faith, Greg told us. I took a hiatus for three years and came back. I still love it. I still love it, but I came back to the same problems. Greg is not colorblind. He is color-wise because he has to be. I have a dream, declared Martin Luther King Jr. that hot August day in Washington, D.C., nearly a half century ago. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Today, conservatives who scorned, or whose parents or grandparents scorned Dr. King when he was alive, now love to quote him, wrenching his words out of context to suggest that he would have opposed affirmative action or indeed any consideration of race in making policy. We should be colorblind, they insist. But to say that color must not dictate judgment is not to say that color is irrelevant. Dr. King knew that in this world, race matters. And so did the assassin who struck him down. We know, we know that race is an illusion a biological fiction, a social construct. We know that the modern concept of race did not exist before the 16th century when it was invented by Europeans to justify the domination, exploitation, and enslavement of Africans, Native Americans, and other darker-skinned people. We know that the obvious physical differences among populations of different continents and climates are not distinct, but gradual. If you were to walk north from Cape Town, South Africa, through Namibia, Angola, Congo, Cameroon, Nigeria, Niger, Algeria, Morocco, take the ferry across the Strait of Gibraltar and press on through Spain, France, Germany, Denmark, all the way to Stockholm, Sweden, the pigmentation of the indigenous population at your destination would be very different than at your starting point. But at no point along your journey would you or could you ever have said, Aha! I have crossed the boundary between the black race and the white race. Because there is no boundary. And there is no race. 85% of all human variation can be found in any local population, whether Egyptian, Norwegian, Peruvian, or Mongolian. Any two Koreans are likely to be as genetically different 
as a Korean and a Spaniard. We know that white men can jump and black men can be president. We know that white women can lay bricks and black women can write poetry. We know that Asians can play basketball or the cello. We know that Latinos can be choreographers and Latinas can serve on the Supreme Court of the United States. We know there is only one race, the human race. Beneath and beyond all our differences shines the one eternal light of spirit that blesses and redeems us. But while all of us are capable of knowing this ultimate unity, this ultimate dimension, we reside also in this dimension, in this place and time of families and communities and societies, and in this world, color matters. The beautiful song by Patricia Shee, notwithstanding. Color matters because it influences, does not determine, but influences powerfully responses, conditions, images, self-images, and therefore outcomes. Race is an illusion, but racism is all too real. The virtuous attempt to be colorblind traps us in a principled ignorance that impedes our journey toward the beloved community. In his excellent book, Yellow, Race in America Beyond Black and White, law professor Frank Wu explains the paradox of colorblindness. Wu asks us to imagine a white couple who invites all their family and friends to the wedding. And it turns out that everyone on the guest list is white, except possibly a few Asian Americans from college and maybe a lone African American couple. Their wedding may not be color conscious in the sense that they sat down and jotted down a list that included whites and excluded blacks, but it is color conscious in the sense that the acquaintances they made during childhood and under their parents' upbringing, throughout school and on into the workplace, and their adult social life are all white, or almost all white and Asian American. Without their having made a single intentional decision to practice racial segregation, but not by accident either, the story of their lives bears out the breadth and depth of the racial abyss. Doubtless they are not even aware, Wu suggests, of how the guests seated at the tables match, not unlike so many place settings of fancy china selected with care. But the black or Latino staff serving the food at the reception will notice. The paradox, Wu writes, is this. Color blindness requires color consciousness, or it becomes impossible to discern itself. In the white wedding case, when the guest list is color conscious, all white or all white with a few Asian Americans is about as color conscious as it could be, we cannot know it by being color blind. 
In the contrary case, if the guest list were colorblind, that is, had people of all racial backgrounds, we would know it only by being color conscious. We cannot disabuse ourselves of race, Wu concludes, without using race. We cannot disabuse ourselves of race without using race. Dear friends, we are immersed in a sea of racial and cultural stereotypes, no less potent for their absurdity and offensiveness. Black men are violent. Black women are domineering. Asians are quiet and good at math. Latinos are loud and good at landscaping. White people are clueless, and we can't dance. The impact of these stereotypes is not equal, but who among us escapes the pernicious influence of prejudice, externalized or internalized? If I'm walking on a deserted city street at night and I see three African-American young men approaching, my body tenses more than if they were European-American. I wish that were not true, but it is. I don't invite that response. It arises without thinking. I used to feel ashamed. Until Jesse Jackson Jr. confessed that he experiences the same response even though he too is African-American. His response and mine are both the consequence of conditioning we neither asked for nor can control. My task, my task is not to be colorblind, because I can't be. My task is to be color-wise to use my intelligence consciously and courageously, to acknowledge, to engage, and to overcome my prejudices. My task is to listen to the truth of others' voices, the truth of their stories, the truth of their lives, understanding that while shared experience often creates shared perspective, each individual is unique and precious. My task is to do the hard and joyful work of building the beloved community here at First Parish and everywhere. And all the while, all the while, my task is to be myself, my true self, or as close as I can get to it without embarrassment or shame, and to invite, encourage, and support all others to do the same. Citing geophysicist Brian Swim, Paulist father Thomas Ryan exults, the whole universe 
we are discovering is a communion experience, a multiplicity of centers in communion with one another. Each of us is someone who has never existed before and who will never exist again. Our value is in our difference. When we act from that difference, we make the greatest contribution we can make. In fact, only this differentiation will enable communion. The ultimate aim of the universe, Father Ryan says, the ultimate aim of the universe is for each thing to be recognized for what it is in its sacred depth. A multiplicity of centers in communion with one another where each one of us is recognized for who we are in our sacred depth. Sounds like the beloved community to me. We have a long way to go, my friend. I am so glad we are on the journey together. Amen. And blessed be.